Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is an hour. So I've got it recording, I have. So uh, welcome back to the Mouth of Manliness, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening to us. This season is going really well. Uh, thank you to Wergy for producing everything for me. And uh, welcome to Gary Hayes from PTSD 999. Good evening, Nick. Yeah, I'm so pleased to have you on, Gary. Um, I think it was, uh, we had Leon on, uh, and Leon's done some stuff to kind of raise funds. He did the marathon for PTSD 99. That's right, yeah. yeah he, put, he put himself through a lot of pain to, uh, yeah. to raise a, quite a, a substantial amount of money for us. I think it, we, he got over 10 grand, I think, somewhere around that, that margin. So he's done really, really well. Yeah. Um, it was, like, I really, the talk with um, Liam was brilliant. It was, uh, I mean, it was, it's emotional points. Um, yeah. But uh, the response has been really amazing, actually. A lot of people kind of really... I got a lot of feedback for Leon's one. And then, um, like, yeah, you guys got in touch and said, yeah, come on. So I'm, I'm so pleased to have you because, uh, you know, I th- it's something I think you know, I feel strongly about. Um, and um, it's funny because today I, I work as a probation officer and I was working with someone today and... Um, it's quite amazing how many like people I've worked with, a lot of their behaviours come off the back of like different traumas that they've experienced yeah. in their lives. And I think it's something that's kind of, people just don't take enough account of. No. You know, that no. it really, it is really like a massively serious thing and it really, really, you know, messes people up. And yeah. like, they, they just don't take it into account. And I'm like, that can, you know, if someone's experienced serious trauma, off the back of that, that could pretty much that could change completely their behaviour and everything. Yeah. So it's pretty insane. So um, the charity then. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about, uh, so what does the charity do exactly then? So, so basically what happened um, back in um, 2012, I um, got involved in a, a matter off duty. And it was that typical rock and hard place. Do I get involved or do I not? 
Um, purely because of the nature of where we were and what was going on. I had one of my boys with me, uh, my middle son at the time. Um, I didn't know, as a result of the work that I had done during the aftermath of the London bombings back in 2005, and all of the fatalities that I'd dealt with from 2003 up until that point, had taken quite a toll on my mental health. Um, I had no idea. And being a bloke, we don't talk about stuff like that because it's not the right thing to do because we're all roughly tough, the old men, aren't we? Yeah. Um, and the last thing you know, we're going to do is turn around to a colleague, a family member, whatever, and just say, you know, I can't go and pick up another bit of dead body, can't go and give CPR to anyone else. It's just um, something we don't do. So when I lost my job, it was quite apparent that um, the emergency services just simply aren't doing enough for the boys and girls out there on the front line, especially around their mental health. Um, so myself and the other guy, we set uh, Simon, he's a, we're both former uh, military men as well, both um, from infantry regiments, um, Simon from the parachute regiment. Um, I served in a far superior regiment, the Royal Green Jackets, back in the day, which are now the rifles, which it always brings up a good chuckle when Simon and I talk yeah, about it. Call the name, the rifles sound much cooler. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, it was quite apparent, as I say, that nothing is actually physically done for the men and women who are struggling, and, and struggling a lot of the time, unknowingly. Um, some are aware that there's some issues. Um, but again, because all the stigmas attached to, to mental health, especially for the guys, um, you know, they don't want to embrace it or even talk to anyone. So we set this little PTSD 999 up. It started off really as a bit of a social media thing. Yeah. And people were contacting us via Facebook and whatever. But then it sort of just grew legs. Um, so we become a, a non-for-profit social enterprise but we knew we had to do more. And the initial concept of it was to just try and treat those in the British Transport Police because I was being a bit selfish, being a former BTP copper, um, and having dealt with fatality after fatality, I just thought to myself, other than the roads police, there's not really a lot of other forces that would encounter the amount of trauma that we had, and the men and women still do, on such a regular basis. So we tried to think of ways of raising funds to treat them. We ended up getting the best sort of trauma-focused clinical team there is. And over the last, I would suggest, three years, um, we've, we've treated a substantial amount of people, all on the back of good people like Leon who've gone out and, and done marathons for us, etc. So, yeah, that's where we're at at the moment, you know. It's... Um, so do you have, um, when you say trauma team, you have like therapists, counsellors? Yeah, so what, what we have, we've got um, the best trauma-focused therapists there are. Um, there's a, a gentleman by the name of um, Professor Jamie Hacker-Hughes. He oversees the work that our clinicians do. Now, um, Professor Hacker-Hughes is possibly the best in Europe. Um, the lady who is our lead clinician, she's probably the best in the UK. Um, so we're not taking any, anything away from any other sort of therapists because they do great jobs, clearly. But to get into that very dark and murky world of trauma, 
you need trauma focused therapists to do it and there's various means of going through that um as i found out when i was having treatment um to get you back to the root cause of what possibly could have been the the trigger for you and, and your ptsd i mean myself um i'm a chronic complex sufferer um, and again a lot of people who have that sort of diagnosis it often comes from something that happened during your youth i um unfortunately was abused um by two different guys when i was a kid um one of which is um been reported to police now and we're hopefully going to gain a prosecution at some stage so i can't talk too much about that however um it's stuff like that that again you just bury in that very um how can i put it untidy filing cabinet that we some of us have yeah. um and it progressively gets more and more untidy because you're putting so much stuff in there um to the point where you simply can't put any more in there um you know that, it leaves. for you like starting on having therapy it's almost like because you'd experienced a lot of trauma post that just through your job yeah it it was it was difficult because you know Daryl was the alleged leader of men and women and always at the forefront of incidents you know leading the guys whatever and i was a crumbled mess you know and i got to a stage unfortunately nick where um when everything really went upside down for me i went to take my own life now that's something I thought I'd never, ever hear myself say, let alone tell anyone, um, because it, I'm just simply not that bloke. Well, I didn't think I was. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's sadly where some of us end up. And unfortunately, and we've had a number of cases this year, where officers across the board from the police, foreign ambulance services, have sadly um, succeeded in taking their lives um, because no one potentially saw what was going wrong or, or the, the changes within those people, you know, and they're just not prepared to address PTSD at the moment, unfortunately. It's like what you said, uh, you know, like you, you don't even know it yourself a lot of the time. No. no. Like you don't even know that what you're experiencing is, you know, is, is, is a result of trauma. You just, you're just getting on with it. But yeah. Very apparent, like with Leon, so much stuff, he was, <laughs> his behavior like post the trauma was, yeah. uh, like he just thought he was getting by not really realizing that that was like almost an expression of the pain absolutely um the the pain um i put my family through the misery uh is unforgivable um and i took a lot of my frustrations out uh, on my two eldest children they were only babies really in you know in the grand scheme of things so uh, my oldest lad <clears throat> after 2005 would have been sort of seven um, my middle boy was just over five years of age and our youngest son had just been born a week um, prior to the to the bombings so their lives as young kids growing up post the, the bombings and whatever um, I would suggest was not a very pleasant experience because I was coming home from work um, and, you know, if one of them breathed at a sequence or did something that kids do, I, I was on top of them screaming and shouting and just, just horrible. Um, and 
that in essence is why we set up the the organization because i don't want any other families to go through what i put mine through um yeah it you know on reflection now uh, just an awful time um and it, and it breaks my heart to know that i um did that to my own children unknowingly you know um as i say i was never physical with them but i was just so so angry and the way i dealt with that sort of scenario was I used to drink. You know, I've been taught very early in life, and as a young infant, to do. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I and I drank simply to enable me to forget what I just dealt with, and mm. to try and get half hours sleep that night. You know, because my nightmares and flashbacks were just awful. But I didn't realise that. You know, quite clearly, I, I was really, really struggling, uh, and that's. That's how we went on for, blimey, seven years. Um, I, I, you, you said a couple of things that I don't, that I don't want to miss. Um, so when you first started talking about this, you said that you you were you were with your son somewhere, and that was yeah. That was when you kind of had a moment. What was that yeah. moment, Gary? What, what happened there that made you think? Oh, yeah, um, well, basically, um, I just spent, um, I think we'd done a, a 10, 12-hour shift over the Olympics. We were part of the um, specialist search teams that were working there throughout the whole period of the Olympics. And we was on day duty. Um, we'd come home, and my boy wanted to go to the shops, um, just at the top of our road. Um, and there was a couple of idiots up there. And basically, I say, this, this sort of situation developed. And it got to a point where I had to call the job in. Um, and I was on my mobile. And we, we ended up in our local train station. Now, if I just digressed back to 2005, um, and the work that I did in the temporary mortuary after the bombings, identifying or helping to identify the victims and what was left of the bombers, um, that really was the, the sort of crux of my PTSD that I didn't know. Um, and that came about because... Um, prior to going into back to work mm. the day after the bombings, obviously my wife had had our youngest son. Um, and thankfully come a week or so early, had he not, we'd worked it out that my wife would have been on the uh, Allgate train that went up because she worked at Holborn police station at the time herself. She was a serving met officer. Um, and we got that down to within a minute. There was no doubt she would have been on that train. The, you know, there's no dramatisation of it. It's yeah. fact. It's just as it was. So, um, one of my duties in the mortuary um, after we'd done various bits and pieces, once we'd identified the victim, I then had to take the victim through to uh, a uh, family viewing area, where the deceased family would would come in and pay their respects. Um, and leave flowers and cards, then I would simply go back into the room afterwards um, and place the cards and flowers in the body bags, take them uh, back with the deceased, and then sort of, you know, carry on. And I just happened to catch sight of a, a card that um, the gentleman that left it, I was informed, um, and I didn't want to know about it. Uh, the, the kid that I took through was probably one of the youngest victims. Um, and allegedly, I don't know how true it is, uh, this gentleman had recently lost his wife and that was his only son. Um, and he left 
um, a message on on a, a, a bereavement card, and I actually read it. I don't know why it just caught my eye. Every other one that I'd done, I'd just placed the cards in the bag, and that was that. Yeah. And it done me. Um, goodness, I I broke all the protocols. I left the young lad unattended. I had to go outside. I broke down in floods of tears. Yeah. And yeah, I, I was just wracked with guilt um, because I was going to go home at some stage that night to my newborn son and my other two children um, and this poor gentleman. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, I had, had, um, had nothing. And um, so, um, excuse me. <clears throat> and so when I got involved with this thing at our station and it was all kicking off and it was getting quite violent, um, I basically end up saving two young coppers' lives and the complainants. But as he tried to push these two young cops who were trying to restrain him onto basically a live track, I just went straight back to the mortuary, saw this card, thought about the kid, and I just, you know, I just lost it. The bloke was really violent towards myself. Um, bearing in mind my boys standing at the top end of the platform watching his dad, who's just in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt trying to wrestle with a very aggressive drunken and dare I say smashed out of his head on drugs individual and yeah that's all I could think about was if he pushes me on the track yeah my son's gonna be um without his dad as my other two sons would be and my wife without her husband and it just yeah that was my thing and it just after that I really really did struggle and I ended up going to the doctor's and uh, he just went, oh, um, you're an ex-soldier. You've got PTSD. And it was as simple as that. There was no <laughs> no sort of investigation. Have really? you ever thought about it in those terms before? No. You'd not? Uh, no. And it wasn't, I'll be honest with you, Nick, and it's, not, it's only now that I realised when I look back, my behaviour um, with the wife and kids, you know, if the kids wanted to go out somewhere, I was a nightmare. I was super hyper vigilant. My wife was always saying, it looks like you want to fight everyone. And all I was doing was just trying to protect my family. Yeah. You know, because I'd seen stuff when I was on part of our anti-terrorism team and done stuff. And, you know, it just, everything was so dark and bleak, you know, um, it was just an awful time. You know, the kids wanted to go out when it snowed, take the toboggans out of the local park with some hills. I just didn't want to do it. I, I couldn't even engage with my own kids, you know. Yeah. Shocking time. It fucking has you mental health like that, though. It has me like that sometimes. Uh, yeah. It was, I, I had a moment in therapy. Like, I still have therapy every week, and and like I'm getting on to three years now. And, uh, and there was, like, I had a moment recently when I was like, I can't enjoy just being around with my family. And, yeah. and and then we kind of broke it down and I managed to make sense of why that was. But <laughs> even after like all that therapy, it took all that time for me to actually kind of kind of you know hit that nut and just think, ah, why yeah. is that then? You yeah. know, yeah. and it is it's all it's, just it, past. Yeah, it is just it's an incredible thing. I mean, I even went through a stage where um my nightmares and flashbacks were that vivid. I was actually vomiting in my sleep. Fucking and, you know, it's just sort of like 
my wife thought I'd gone back on the beer again. Yeah. And I had to really sort of say to her, look, no, I'm, I'm not drinking. It's just, I go, I close my eyes and then boom, I'm at this scenario. I'm, I'm dealing with that job. But it's the, the smells and it's so, so real. Um, and I spoke to a, a, a professor, some Greek guy. Um, we, we got invited a couple of years ago up to uh, John Napier University up in uh, Edinburgh to, to do a, a sort of Q&A session. And I sort of grabbed him and I sort of said, look, you know, I'm, I'm still struggling with the fact that I've been diagnosed with complex chronic PTSD. Um, but I've been doing this. Is it, you know, what what is it? Because it's like screwing me head over. And he just started laughing. And I've just become an angry badger again. I just wanted to punch his lights out, you know. And he just tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Gary, he just sit down. He said, it's part of it. It's part of the process. It's part of the healing thing. Mm-hmm. And when he explained it to me in very, dare I say it, common language. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And then, of course, that's when he brought up about being abused as a kid and all the rest of it. Um, he said, it's just the, the mind, the brain's way of dealing with... A, that early trauma that you've never spoken about, you've never told anyone about, yeah. and then all the traumas that you've dealt with thereafter. He said it's just a, it's just the way everyone reacts differently. And it was sort of like, um, okay. So did you bury the early trauma? Like, did you? Absolutely. Did, Absolutely. Like, had you kind of blocked it out? Had you got yep. to that point when you yep. didn't even kind of know it? Like, you actually yeah. go through sucks. That yeah. must have been fucking awful to have to go through a really <laughs> to come to that conclusion. So yeah, the, the, the thing that screwed me up with that, Nick, over all them years yeah. was the fact that I'm the eldest of uh, three other siblings. Um, so, you know, my brothers and my sister, um, when we were babysat by this individual and stuff was happening to me, you know, I knew it was wrong, even though I was only a, an ankle biter myself. Yeah. Um, but from that point, even to now, it's like, did he do it to my brothers and my sister? Yeah. I'm the big brother. I should have protected them. Yeah. When it happened again, um, a few years later, I knew it was wrong, but again, it was just that because it was in the seventies, you know, after what I'd experienced earlier, it was, well, no one's going to believe you and blah, blah, blah. And that sort of, I think, to a point, made me the sort of person that I might be now in relation to, I've been very protective of everyone and I'll do my best for everyone because I don't want, um, it sounds a bit cliche, I don't want people to get hurt. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like that as I grew up. Um, you know, my dream, like any young bloke back then, back then was to be a professional footballer and I was fortunate enough to, be following that route. Then I joined the army, um, you know, um, went around the world, did bits and pieces, but was always, you know, very um, particular about looking after the blokes I was with um, and and whatever I've done thereafter. And, and again, in the police, you know, when I found myself as a, you know, I joined very late in life. I was, what, 34, I think, 35. Yeah. So quite old, really. Um, but I still found myself, well, because the young blokes and girls were like, well, he's, old, he's an old man, he'll look after us anyway. Yeah, he's really young. So it was that sort of scenario. But, um, yeah, and I just, that's how I've been throughout and hence then setting up PTSD 999. Do you think um, 
you went into the army um, because of what had happened to you? Um, it's almost like I've, I've worked with people before and they've, um, they, they've experienced, you know, abuse from a young age. Yeah. They end up, this has been quite common throughout my work, um, people then feel like they need to really prove that they're, they're not that <laughs> and they're very manly. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know what, mate? I've never actually thought of it like that. I mean, I think one of the, the big things for me was that I've always been uh, the type of guy, if you said, no, you can't do that, I would go around to you and say, well, fuck you, I'm going to do it. And one of the things that was said to me, because I was a bit of an unruly teenager, for want of a better word, um, oh, you, you'll never survive in the army. You'll never get through the training. So I thought, well, fuck the lot of you. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. Um, and, you know, a lot of the lads I grew up playing football, we've ended up made it, you know, to the professional standards and some of them are even kept in England, you know, um, I had great times doing that, but when I when I got into the army and I went to Winchester, um, basically I was met with um, a completely different way of life. I turned up there with all my long hair. This is like the mid eighties, you know, looking like a complete whatever. And you know these these nice guys wearing green kit, looking very smart and very fit. Yeah. You know, very nice to us until we got through the camp gates, yeah. and then by fuck did my world change. Um, and I must admit, the person who said I wouldn't be able to take the discipline was my mum. And I phoned her up on that first week and was crying my eyes out. Mum, they've cut all my hair off. They don't stop screaming and shouting at us. They don't keep, you know, stop punching us. They don't stop doing it. And she went, you said you could do it. And from that point, I was like, okay, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And there was over 170 of us on our cohort. Um, and 55 of us passed out at the end of it. So the attrition rate was quite huge. You know, yeah. we lost, you know, two-thirds of the guys. Um, but I stuck with it, and I guess part of me was already made anyway, but I think going into the Royal Green Jackets um, made me the man I am now, I think. You know, What's the Royal um, Green Jackets then? So we were a frontline infantry regiment, and we've got loads of history. It's now, um, they're now known as the Rifles. Um, we got disbanded back in 2007. Uh, so, yeah, we, loads of history. Um, yeah, there's just, I could spend all night talking to you about it. So you're part of something yeah. bigger though, aren't you? And, and it's almost like, at that point, you could almost change who you are. You know, change yeah. your identity and push the past away. Yeah, and and the thing is, when when you're in that environment with all these young, spotty, fit kids, you're all fighting each other. You want to be the best. You, as far as you're concerned, you're going into the best regiment in the in the British Army, which you know I'll always stand by that we were. Um, and the competitiveness in there, it, it was just unbelievable. And for me. All I wanted to do was do my best. Yeah. Um, but again, it's it sort of when you're coming through those latter stages of the training and you're given tasks to look after a section of men. Yeah. Again, it's sort of where I've been captain of football teams at various levels and all that sort of stuff. 
it all just sort of fell into place and it became a natural thing for me to be, I don't know, a supervisor if you want. Yeah. A manager or whatever. Um, it was just a natural thing, but I never actually thought about what had happened to me as a child um, until, blimey, the mid-90s, I think, something like that. Um, my wife, um, as I say, was a police officer and she worked in child protection. And we went out one night for a, a meal over at Romford Dogs and, um, you know, with her team and they had a new member of the team and he was a bit of a jack the lad. No real concept of the suffering children go through in the hands of these people. Yeah. And he said something quite flippant. Um, and again, it was like that incident at the train station. It just triggered something in me. And I just leant across the table and was going to kill him. Um, and, you know, quite embarrassing for the wife and the friends that I've made through, through her, obviously her colleagues. And when we finally got home, I was beyond furious, but also I just broke down in floods of tears. And I explained to her about this one incident, but I didn't tell her about the one yeah. afterwards, you know, because it just... Shame, the yeah, it, yeah, all manner of reasons, really. And it, and it was just sort of like, you know, that, I don't want to talk about it anymore. That's the end of it. Um, and then you sort of leap forward to doing the stuff that we did in the police. And that, you know, Leon's still doing as we speak. He may well be on duty now dealing with something quite nasty, as are, you know, the men and women up and down the country. And nothing really prepares you for those incidents. No, no training. Um, will give you the sort of realisation of when you're dealing with someone who's possibly dying in front of you um, as severe injuries and you've got to crack on, administer first aid, do do the stuff that police officers do, that emergency services workers do. You know, nothing prepares you for that, unfortunately. You know. Did you experience, like, when you were in the army, um, like, did, were you, did you go into battle? Did you experience trauma there? Um, I would suggest every other day was, again, it was traumatic, but I was fortunate, you know, I, I didn't get to see too much. Um, and that was probably one of the reasons why I left because I got bored that we weren't getting the postings that I wanted, um, to go on. All I had to worry about when I was in was Northern Ireland and the Cold War. Um, when I came out, um, I missed it quite well, major league really. Um, to the point where I ended up joining um, one of our territorial battalions. And I spent eight years being a, a TA soldier, um, stroke instructing new guys and girls uh, in, into the ways of the regiment. So, yeah, it was just passing on that knowledge. <laughs> you like being busy? work on top of everything else. Yeah, it's, um, it just keeps me going, to be fair. And I, I think I'll probably get that from my mum. I mean, as kids, uh, my mum used to organise all manner of coach trips for the kids around where we lived in Dagenham because, you know, a lot of us back in the day there, I say, were very deprived. It, you know, we weren't very wealthy at all. So my mum would arrange coach trips up to see, I don't know, um, Christmas tree at Trafalgar. Yeah. Or we'd, we'd go out to the theatres and we'd watch pantomimes and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was it seemed that my mum was always doing that sort of stuff you know and, and trying to keep everyone happy and keeping the kids smiling you know because we were dare I say it 
hard done by. You know, we, <laughs> we certainly weren't living in the wealthiest part of Dagenham if there is such a place. But again, it was just part of the way we were brought up, you know. There's also a, like, an element of, uh, I, I call it action is the enemy of thought. Like if you're busy and you're, <laughs> then you're not thinking, then your brain's not thinking about horrible things. It's Absolutely. Like, so yeah. it's kind of quite helpful sometimes. Um, yeah. Now, you know, for me, this, um, this month, I hate this month with a passion. You know, it's, it's the anniversary of the 7-7. Yeah. And it's around this sort of time now that we started actually identifying the victims and then, you know, start to get that process done to take them, you know, for the family viewings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I spent just under eight weeks in the bloody place, you know. Fucking hell. Doing sort of 12, 14-hour days and coming home to my new, my new son, taking oh. him off uh, my wife's hands and, you know, before I knew it, it was time to give him back, you know, go and see the other two boys, then back to work again. And it was you'd like that. It was relentless. You'd think they'd kind of shift it out so that at least you didn't have to do eight weeks of it. Yeah, well, it was just the way it went. I mean, if you remember, um, it was chaos. Um, <laughs> when it actually happened, I was in Tesco's um, buying some nappies and the wife phoned me up. She said, oh, have you, you heard about this power surge on the underground? And I went, that's no power surge. Um, because I was then part of our newly sort of reformed anti-terrorism group. So I found out one of my mates and I could hear the um, sirens going in the background. And he said, guys, you get your kit, mate. We've just been bombed. So I went, all right. Then he went, I'll stand by. We've just been bombed again. So the drill really was then. I said, look, there's no way I'm going to be able to get into London all the network's going to start closing down, the phones are going to start going down, I will try and get in tomorrow. Um, and that's what I did. And I spent two days uh, at Charing Cross, which in itself was just absolute bedlam. You know, people trying to go about their daily business, London was closed down. Yeah. And one of my governors come up and just said to me, um, right, you're going down to the mortuary. And I was like, well, well why is that? And he went, well, because people just can't work down there. You know, like, yeah, I didn't, Penny didn't even drop. Well, why is that then? Mm. He said, well, it's quite unpleasant. Well, okay. So why are you sending me then? He said, well, you're an ex-soldier and you're a sergeant. And I went, I'll just stop you there. You got one part right. And he went, congratulations on the promotion. Now get down there. Uh, so I went, I went down there as an ex like <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just went down there and, dug in with the teams and, and we did what we did, you know. Yeah, it's one of those things when it's got to do what's got to be done. Um, mm. Yeah, and there's not a lot else you can do, but yeah. No. Sadly, Nick, it's just, it's that situation like you say, mate, it's, um, you just got to roll your sleeves up and crack on. And, you know, the, the team that I was working with, these men and women, it was it was a multitasked um, environment. So there was cops from all up and down the country, different forces. And the men and women that I've been working with, or started to work with, were all sort of veterans of the uh, Boxing Day tsunami. So they'd really just sort of finished dealing with that. And then, goodness me, they're back into the throw of it again. Yeah. For them, it was normal. I had no idea of what 
I was about to become involved with, um, other than just knowing that I wanted to help. I wanted to be part of something, do something that was going to try and assist the, the 52 victims um, and try and give a bit of closure to their to their relatives. Um, you know, just try and do my job. And we went into, we had four pods, um, which represented the four bombing locations. And we went in, um, and without getting too graphic, the, the guy who was sort of running it just sort of said, look, open the bag, and if you don't like what you're about to see, zip it up and just leave. There's nothing against you or your, or your force. But, you know, and bearing in mind, I've seen a lot of trauma or people in trauma through suicide on the railway at that time anyway. I didn't think anything was going to bother me. I didn't think anything could um, until I opened this bag and it was just like, wow. Um, the the blast injuries alone were phenomenal. The rate of decomposition was just super fast because it was so hot, if you can remember back then. And of course, the bodies were stuck in the trains, under the trains in the tunnels for a number of days before we could retrieve them. So it was, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on. And we just, the guy I was in there with was a colleague of mine from the BTP. And we just looked at this guy and just went, mm, going to need a lot of bread to mop that soup up. And he went, pair of fuckers, you're in. And that was it. And we yeah. just went through that whole process. And it was just that gallows humour. Yeah, I'm just about to say that. I, I, yeah. I, I've spent a lot of my career working with people who have committed awful offences to children. Yeah. And, um, uh, and you have to be able to have that gallows humour about it, like, because otherwise Absolutely. you can't deal with it. And a lot of people, <laughs> you're being callous, but you're not. You're like... You're not. you just got to deal like, it helps you deal with it. Of course, yeah. It's crazy stuff that you deal with, like you did, you know, it's just insane. I was curious about that. Um, I imagine, I, one thing, uh, I don't think a lot of people credit BTP for what they do. Really <laughs> Thank you for saying that, it's quite true. Anyone who's listening, like, hear this, because they fucking, they, they do a, a proper job. <laughs> Like I've got a friend who was in beat there, British Transport Police, John, and uh, um, like he he's seen some things, and um, and I think you know how often like you're on the train and the train gets stopped and people are like, oh fucking just kill, oh, I'm <laughs> done with, you know, kill yourself. Yeah, like, yeah, but someone's got to fucking go in there and sort that out. Do you know what? It's so true, Nick. I mean, the people's perceptions of, of the transport police are just people who get on the trains and aggravate everyone asking for tickets. Well, you know, we're more than ticket inspectors, just put it that way. You know, I mean, I, I remember um, a few years back, um, some of my mates were going out to Afghan and we decided that we we're going to have a piss up stroke uh, pre wake. Just in case, as Got you do. Squatty, yeah, squatty <laughs> humour. Um, and I said to my wife, look, I, I will be home early. It was a Saturday. So she was like, yeah, of course you will be. And I said, no, I'll definitely be home early. And we went into into London. We had a great day on the piss. It was a, a real fantastic day. Give her, you know, hugs and whatever else. Said our goodbyes. Um, 
and that was that. And I, and I left early, much to everyone's amazement. So I'm normally the last one there holding the bar up. And as I was coming home, uh, we'd left Barking Station going towards Upney and I was sat in a front carriage because where I live, the front carriage, I basically fall out of that, walk out the ramp, I'm out of the station. You know, good drills. Yeah. And um, as we were approaching uh, Upney Station, all of a sudden the train sort of stopped, started, stopped. Then I felt a bump. And it's like, really? This No, this really can't be happening. I'm in the good books. I'm going home, early doors. And sadly, a young kid had jumped in front of the train. Um, he's 15 and a half, a local lad. Um, was having some sort of trauma at home. Um, we found out that he had taken a lot of his father's medication, drunk a lot of his alcohol, and literally jumped off the overbridge in front of our train. Poor train driver, which, again, nobody really thinks about in those scenarios. He's um, straight on the tannoy. Um, someone's just jumped in front of the train. Is there any transport police on the train? I'm banging on the cab door, really pissed, and I'm trying to find my warrant card, and I hold it up to the spy hole, and he opens the door, and he, and he went, he, he's there, he's there. So I sort of got out of the driver's cab, and I, I couldn't see anything. And when I did see the lad, it was like, you know, he's succeeding in his, in his task. But you sober up immediately. Um, and then the station staff came down, orchestrated everything, and we retrieved the kid from under the train, the ambulance people turned to, and we dealt with it. Then my colleagues from my Nick actually turned up, and um, the duty governor came down, which was a, a rare thing, because they don't really come out to fatalities. And um, there I was, laying on the ambulance stretcher, um, just getting my breath back, much the annoyance of the ambulance crew and the fire brigade. And I've basically done everything, you know, got a kid in the body bag, searched him, whatever. And uh, my boss turned up and he went, like, you know, amazing. He said, I like, I, where did he say it? I don't think what you like when you're sober. <laughs> I was like, what? And he just laughed at me and the lad's giving me a lift home. And I, he wrote me up for it and I've got accommodation for it. Oh, really? You know? Yeah, it just anyone would have done it, and you know, oh, yeah, but but nice it, it was just, yeah, it, it was nice to be recognized for the work. Yeah. Um, but again, you just think that poor kid, what was going through his mind to, to do that? You know what I mean? Experienced a lot of that on the railway, though, um, mm. or, or having to stop people killing themselves. You must really kind of that's proper front line on the suicide front, it's got to be, yeah. I mean, you. We used to have taskings where we knew um, from local intelligence that there were certain individuals that might try and save their lives. And invariably, they, they succeeded. Um, I think I could probably count on three fingers that many times that we were fortunate enough to be near or in the right place at the right time to prevent that person from taking their life. Some weeks or months later, you'd go to another fatality and it would be that person and they would finally succeed. Oh, yeah, if someone wants to do it, they're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you might, uh, yeah, except that's like, that's loads and loads more trauma. You, the amount of yeah. trauma, you, you were just banking all this trauma. Loads yeah, I, in one shift, I think we had we had three, three fatalities, and that involved, um, you know, going um, to the scene, dealing with the scene, um, you know, retrieving the deceased from under the train, 
or, or whatever. Um, and then having to identify them, um, you know, by means of searching them. So you're dealing with a very disruptive body um, and you're looking for means of identification. Um, and then, you know, because some, most of the time you're single crewed anyway, because there's not that many BTP officers. Yeah. Um, you'd find yourself going to the local mortuary, writing up some notes, and then possibly you would be the person to then go and deliver the death message. So you've you've done the whole thing, and yeah. that used to happen quite a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. See, that's yeah, that's another really horrible thing that you've got to go and do. You experience yeah. their trauma with them almost. Of course, yeah. um, it's we had we had one um, again with Aggie and Two Graphic. We was at Ilford Station. We had a little police post there. Yeah. and an elderly lady fell down the last couple of stairs and we just went over to assist um, and there was a gentleman on the platform and he just came over to us as we were speaking to this old girl and she was a proper old East End bruiser yeah. cussing and cursing and telling us she just wanted to go home and the station supervisor came out and he said look it's a station accident girl don't worry about it we'll get her a taxi and this gentleman came up and he said I just want to say to you uh, thank you she was like Oh, all right, mate. Yeah, don't get a lot of thank yous, but thank you for saying thank you. No, no, he said, I'm, I really mean it, especially this time of year, because I think it was about two, three days before Christmas, something like that. Yeah. And um, it was like, okay, mate, not a problem. Thanks very much. You know, did you see anything? He went, yeah, she just fell down the last couple, missed a step in. She just went down. Thanks very much. I said, if you just give that to the supervisor, fantastic. We went up the stairs. We got to the top of the stairs and then we heard this almighty bang. Um, one of our little probationary cops at the time, they come running over to us, Sarge, Sarge, I, I think there's a fatality. And as we turned down to walk back down the stairs, uh, it was an abattoir. So first thing to do is establish if it was a suspicious death, if this guy had been pushed or whatever. And when I looked at the CCTV, it was the gentleman that had been speaking to us. Sorry, there's a car alarm going off outside. He literally, after he watched us walk up the stairs, he um, went back to his bike, messed about with one of the bike satchels, looked at the matrix board for the next train coming in, and then the fast one came through, um, going out towards South End, and that's the one he jumped in front of. And then once we'd picked him up and what was left of him, um, that process was then to um, get him in the mortuary. And I went to his home address in the Brentwood area. A very big house, very posh, you know. Knocked on the door and I could hear these kiddies running to the door. Mummy, daddy's home. And you just sort of take a breath and you think, right, okay. And then this kid opened the door. And I'll never forget it because the first thing he said to me was, where's my fucking dad? And I just didn't anticipate that coming from this young kid at all. And there I'm in my uniform. And it was just like, you know, his mummy in. Then his brother came up and then his little sister came up and they were all roughly the same age as my children. And I'd noticed on the on the hallway, there was a picture, family picture that I've been on holiday or something. And so... I had a photo idea of the guy um, and I noticed it was him. And eventually mum came to the door and she invited me in. She was anticipating it, I think. Um, and she said, can you tell the children? So, well, 
again, no one's trained me for this. I don't know what to oh, say. Really? To, yeah. Um, and I had to take the kids into the kitchen um, after a, a neighbour came in because they were concerned about the police car being outside. And they sat with mum um, and tried to explain to kids under 10 that daddy's not coming home for Christmas or any other Christmas. It was difficult. Um, and, you know, you spend as much time as you can with them. Um, and I went back and spoke with mum. And then mum said, can you tell his mum? She lives around the corner. I was like, yeah, okay. You know, it can't get any worse. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I literally drove around the corner and um, this lady, um, as I pulled up outside the house, um, all of a sudden the curtains were twitching because it was a, a gated community. So it was, you know, quite a posh, posh oh, yeah. place. And this woman opened a window and she just leant out and said, you fucking killed him. It's your fucking fault. And I sort of looked up and thought, oh, here we go. So I walked down the path and I didn't even get to knock on the door. Now, I was a bit lighter than I am now then. I was reasonably fit. And do you know what? This woman opened that door and she punched me in, in the chest so hard it actually took me back on my heels. And then she just screamed at me again and slammed the door. And it was sort of like I just stood there and it was that, that moment of, well, what do I do now? Because <laughs> I just, I didn't know what to do. You know, um, and I just called it in on the radio and said, look, you know, I've delivered, delivered the second death message. And they went, oh, yeah, all right, um, there's a job at Romford. Someone's just jumped a barrier. Can you uh, go and sort it out? Yeah, all right, <laughs> Yeah, and that was it, Nick. It was just sort of like, oh, whatever, it's my job. Get back in the car and off we go, you know. How did you, when did, so what have you what have you been through to deal with all of this thing, Gary? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Um, how, how did you come to the decision to like to deal with everything? And well, it was it was the fact of losing my job um, and getting prosecuted for a, an offence of ABH, um, which nearly sent me to prison, and that was in relation to that incident. Um, but I'll always throw in the end bit where I'll say that the um, the judge um, basically um, sent me away. This was Christmas 2013, and he um, wanted pre-sentencing reports, and I went to see the top forensic shrink in the country at the time. And I sat down with him, went through everything, um, and he, in his report, just basically said that I was a, a chronic complex sufferer of PTSD. My actions on the day were as a result of the London border stuff right. I didn't it took me back to it right yeah, yeah. Um, we did that through um, EMDR um, and yeah it was I had a few sessions of EMDR but my um, my force wouldn't continue to pay for the therapy um, so I was supposed to have had somewhere in the region of 30 plus sessions I think I had six and I would come home from them I don't know how you've you've felt with your um, therapy in it, but I used to come home from that EMDR very confused, but extremely tired. Um, I, I felt as if I'd just done ten rounds with Mike Tyson. It was physically and mentally so debilitating. Um, yeah, people don't realise that. No. Uh, like it, it, it's it's exhausting. It's exhausting having the condition. Yep. 
and then the therapy, <laughs> like, well, you're better now, aren't you? Come on. And you're like, no, I'm fucking exhausted. I've just spent like, hour, like even just an hour like, talking about yeah. in my head. And like, yeah, you're exhausted, but not just mentally, you're physically exhausted. Absolutely. Yeah. But the condition makes you physically exhausted. You know, like, yeah. like um, makes you physically weak sometimes. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, like, I, I say to a lot of people now that, you know, the, the first step, and, you know, I'm not a clinician, I'm just a sufferer. Yeah. Um, but my own humble opinion is is this, that once you, you've actually admitted to yourself that you've got an issue going on, yeah. that's probably one of the bravest things you'll ever do in your life. Yeah, it's the biggest. Secondly, yeah, secondly is then being able to talk about it. Um. And wear, wear that badge with pride because you've done stuff and seen stuff that, thankfully, not a lot of other people have to. But you're there. You're dealing with it. And, you know, you go home at the end of your shift. And, Nick, I, I lost count how many times I would want to sit down and tell my old lady what I'd done during that day. I've had to do CPR on two different people today. I've had to do this. I've had another. But I didn't. You know, it was just come in, make sure the kid's all right. I'd have a beer. Yeah. And that was it. And I wouldn't really talk about it, but I wanted to. But again, being I know, overly protective, I didn't want to put her through all that emotion and trauma because she was having enough of that of herself, you know, at work. So, yeah, it's... Um, I remember, um, like, when I got really kind of mentally ill and then just actually having to tell my wife what goes on in my head yeah and just be really honest about all the suicide and everything the yep. wanting you know all of that and and like from that moment on I've been getting better you Good. know the minute yeah. you kind of admit it to yourself and to someone else yeah uh, that's the road to recovery and it is recovery yeah. you know like yeah. it, it, it's not like these things go away uh, <laughs> and that's the other thing. Like, plots, you've got a handful of pills. Uh, you have therapy all the time. You've spent loads of money on all these other therapists. You've been it's like, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's like a, this is a, a lot. This is a lifelong it's, thing. Yeah, it, you, you learn to manage it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I sort of know roughly now what my triggers are. Um, and as my children have got older, um, and when I sort of start struggling, um, they'll just kick me up the arse, say something. I'm like, yeah, cheers, happy days. And I'll take myself to my safe place and I'll put my rock music on, I'll listen to whatever, or I'll go for a walk, um, or I'll do anything other than think about what I was unknowingly leading myself into. I find myself now... <laughs> Like, uh, it'll be two weeks down the line and then I'll realise that I'm really having, I'm, I'm turning again. Yeah. And, and then the minute I kind of realise, you know, I talk to my wife about it and then I'll be like, oh, this has been going on for a month. You yeah. know, I, that's the thing. You don't always know it. So it's really yeah. helpful. There's a bit like my wife will go like, you're not well. Yeah. Okay. You're not well again. Yeah. Like, you're drinking more, you're doing yeah. this. And, you know, I didn't even realise it, but you're right. You're right. No, I'm yeah. not. It's so, and it's so helpful if you've got people around you. Who can yeah, and, and it, I think that's 
probably been one of the biggest things for me, Nick, that's helped me is, is the fact that, you know, when I got that full diagnosis, the penny dropped. Yeah, diagnosis. Because she was, you know, she'd been in, she'd done 30 years in the Met. And so when I got that diagnosis, she was 20 plus years in. She had loads of experience. And then everything, I'm not saying made sense there and then, but it, it sort of formed the picture. Yeah. If that makes sense. And, totally makes sense. You know, yeah. And, and, you know, as I say, with, with my boys now, it's sort of like, you know, if I start getting quiet and then getting withdrawn and they'll just go, we're fatty. And I'm like, yeah, cheers. That's all I need. And it sort of gives me that, that lift. Oh, what else I think is really good about that is that um, your kids know about it. Um, yeah. Um, so do you know what, Nick? They can accept some of what's happened before, you know, like when you might have yeah. been like ratty with them, they can accept that and they can understand that it's not you, it's something, it's an illness kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and then they understand the, it as well. And that's really, you've hit the, the nail on the head there, I say, you know, um, for my oldest boy, he, he took the brunt of my, my aggression. Um, and I asked him a few years back if he would write um, a statement, just so as I could, when we do our presentations to the police for an ambulance, it adds a bit of weight to the point we're trying to make, because my wife had done one also, and it was like, wow, I was really like that. Um, when my boy did his, to read it, it kills you. Um, and I, I I could never read it out to, to the audience. So I'd have to get someone to read it because it just oh, burst into tears. But for a young boy to turn around and say that he hated his dad, dreaded the moment his dad came home because he was in fear of what dad would say or possibly do, not only to him, but to his two brothers as well. Yeah. And it's sort of like, when I thought about it, he's sort of mirroring that protective process that I went through Um, and you know to to sort of finish that that sort of thing off with you know spoken to his grandparents who had said that you know dad used to be this chirpy cockney happy go lucky do anything for everyone sort of bloke and he you know he said in in the statement where is that man he's he's not here now and my parents said to me you know how did you hide it from us for so long and I'm just like I, I guess my answer was well, I'm like a good alcoholic. Yeah. I can hide it. But when I'm away from everyone, by Christ, does it go wrong? Yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, yeah. you say you learn to live with it and you deal with it. And it's 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 a bizarre old thing. It, oh, God, it's a bizarre thing. I, I had that when I started doing the podcast and I had, like, old friends listening. And then they'd kind of ring me or message me saying, I feel so guilty. Yeah, I find it really hard to listen to because I didn't realise what you were going through. Yeah, and I'm like, no, well, like, I didn't even realise what I was going through in many. That's the thing you don't. Realize. So how can you possibly verbalise? You're like, you're just thinking, oh, I'm just really shit, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, and you go around telling people, oh, I'm really shit. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and yeah, and as men, yeah, we're meant to like uh, man up and deal with it. 
and that's it you know the amount of times that i said that to people or had people say it to me and it, because there are say we are of a certain age um i'm obviously clearly a lot older than your, your good self um <laughs> But it was that was the process of growing up. If you fell over, get up, dust yourself down, and crack on. Yeah. You know, um, dealing with violent individuals. I mean, violence for me and the police was nothing new um, because I'd been involved in a lot of violence in other jobs, um, and violence didn't bother me. Um, but it got to the point where I was actually being very aggressive um, towards certain groups of people i.e. football supporters, stroke hooligans, and your day-to-day idiots. And, you know, again, an, an incident happened, and it got quite messy. And my colleague, my partner, turned around at me and just went, you need to check yourself. You're getting out of order now. And I was like, you can fuck off, because I'm, you know, just get on with your job. Yeah. And it wasn't until we got home that I sort of thought, oh, he might be quite right, yeah. you know, but I wouldn't actually speak to him about it. You right. know, I was just thinking, well, if he's thinking it, who else is thinking it? Yeah. Because you was, as I say, I was always there as, um, I don't know, a leader, a no-nonsense sort of cop. Um, you know, I, I arrested loads and loads of people. Apparently I was a one of the top thief takers and right. all the rest of it. But equally... I probably took home as many people as I'd arrested in the back of the car to get them indoors, to give them back to their parents or whatever, and just say, don't be a twat. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. You know, a bit of old school sort of working, but, you know, it just, sadly, when it does eventually kick in with you, your world falls apart because, you know, I know everyone's individual and they all have different, um, how can I put it? different sort of episodes for want of a better word. Um, I certainly didn't think it would happen to me. You know, you deal with people on, in the street who are mentally ill and you, you arrest them under the mental health facts. And sadly you have to take them in to be sectioned. You take them to that place of safety because that's your job. Yeah. And there was no, um, piss taking. It was quite always a, a sad event because you knew that you'd take these people into, local mental health units and invariably they wouldn't get looked after they'd just be sedated kicked out after 72 hours yeah yeah, and it's awful it's absolutely awful and that's really again it's highlighted with me since we've been doing this amount of people that come to us and the emails i receive and phone calls how important it is that we do get our charitable status and hopefully we get some big funding and we can get out there and help not only the frontline men and women, um, you know, we also look after the, the backroom boys and girls, the call takers, yeah. um, retired staff and immediate family members. Because as we said right at the beginning, mate, it, it's not always about the the uh, the individual. The, the knock-on effects with mental health, especially in the family unit, it can be catastrophic. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. know, and... And people just don't realise it. And highlighted that because, uh, uh, yeah, that's another thing I don't realise. It just impacts. It impacts on you so much that it it changes. Like it almost dictates your behaviour. Absolutely. And you know, uh, one thing that really sticks in my mind because I used to be like it before I joined the police. 
you, you picture yourself sat in that queue of traffic going nowhere and you've been sitting there for what seems a lifetime and then all of a sudden that police car that's been sat behind you on go the blue lights and the sirens and they edge their way through the traffic I used to think to myself you cheeky twats you cheeky bastards we're all sitting here yeah, and you're uh, but what are they but, to? yeah but until I started doing that because a job had come in you know I'd looked at the people sitting in the cars thinking exactly what I had been thinking um, and what I often say if we're doing a presentation to um, non-emergency services people is that please if you see that scenario don't think that they're late for their bloody kebab their cup of tea getting off shift they're probably going to something that they don't realise will potentially change their lives forever and that's the realisation we take everything for granted and, and I'm sure with Leon you know the night that Leon uh, was involved in the act of terrorism he didn't know that that was going to happen he didn't know that he would react in the manner that he did along with everyone else um, and you know what Leon's like he's just a smashing bloke he's just a lovely lovely man um, but again it took a time for him to realise that his actions on that night would stay with him for the rest of his life. Yeah. You know, and it's, know. You know, as soon as people, you know, realise or accept that, you know, every time you see a police car, an ambulance, a fire engine going past you on the blue lights, it's for a reason. They're going to an emergency call. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult. You know, you imagine sat there, especially if you're single crewed, a call would come in and you're trying to get updates on the radio as you're driving through built up areas on the blue lights with the sirens going and you're just trying to keep one step ahead of everything else but no and when you get to that job because you've already had dare i say the crux of it yeah. given to you you know what you're going to but you've got to remain professional do what you do and then move on to the next job um you know. Yeah, because you're meant to be like the, you know, like the man thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, over men and women who yeah. can deal with all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is, it is tough, but you know, again, no amount of training or, or, although preparing you for those events, it, it, it never does prepare you. And sadly, what happens, um, and. There's, there's not enough of it now, even. There's not enough training given to new recruits, which I'm really trying to impose into the emergency services, is mental health awareness and mental health awareness within yourself, within the workplace. Because, again, as soon as you start recognising signs and symptoms, you know, I'm not going to turn you into a clinician overnight, but if you've got the basis... Not only can you look after yourself, you can look at your, your colleagues as well. Yeah. You know. It's amazing that they don't have that. Uh, like, my friend works uh, uh, at Tilbury Docks. Yeah. He had training and how to spot if someone, you know, little bits about seeing if someone's suicidal or not. Yeah. You know, and, to, and you think they do it there, but... And you like the police and emergency services are under trauma all day long, and it's yeah. like, yes, yeah, so you can look out for your mate, you can look out for someone, and you can think, hold on, am I, 
let's just not. No, it was funny when I, I spoke with Leon. Like he, he felt like he'd had quite a good follow-up with the police. And yeah. I don't think it was dreadful by any means the follow-up that he did have. But it's just like a bit of counselling, you know, like a few guys. <laughs> but like if you go to the doctors tomorrow and say, I feel a bit sad, they will give yeah. you six weeks. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> you know, so you're getting the same treatment if you feel a bit sad to if yeah. you... Uh, if you know you've got an enduring lifelong mental health problem, <laughs> yeah. fucking treatment. And the only way you get involved <laughs> is if you go to a charity or if you stamp your feet like I did and yeah. demand it because otherwise you're going to kill yourself. Absolutely. You know, why does it have to get to that point? And it's, it's a cultural shift, isn't it? It's like. Yeah. Oh, big time. Absolutely big time. You know, um, and, and you look at what's going on in the world now and. You know what the emergency services are, are enduring, not only with now all these protests, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but with the COVID stuff. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> during my furlough period from my from my day job, I ended up um, doing a volunteering role. This will make you laugh. Um, uh, a hospital um working in the temporary place of rest i had a moultrie for the covid victims um but it was to basically because i'd had that experience yeah um and a, a, an ex green jacket friend of mine called me and said oh this charity really needs some help they need these people blah 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 i was on furlough just went and did it you know it's just it's well, what you do but, I think there's something to be said for using your the experiences in, and your like like I think like this is kind of why I do this really. It's like using all the darkness that I've had. Yeah. Trying to use it for something good. Yeah. Take the darkness out of it. Yeah. You know, going back to what you said right near the beginning of you know. Um, I was going to make some notes tonight. It's an old police thing. I can't stop doing it. Um, but what you said earlier on about well, how do you deal with it and, and how do you get your help? Yeah. This is a such a cathartic process for me. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's great. I'm talking to someone who gets it. Yeah. They've got it. I know. It's and, such a me. That's yeah. why I do it. <laughs> yeah. And do you know what? This is why I, I say to the, the people that I speak to, um, on far too a regular basis now from our emergency services because I often, you know, quite a distressing phone call yeah. and at the end of it, they'll turn around to me and say, well, who helps you? And I said, well, unknowingly, you just have. Because there's nothing you can say that will shock me. It might upset me, but there's nothing you can say that will just tip me over the edge because I've been there. Yeah. I know it all sounds a little bit dramatic, no, no, no. It's the truth. And, you know, I find each time I speak to someone, because everyone has their own story, um, and I, I don't show any empathy, you know, if I'm having this sort of chat or on the telephone to someone, because it's the it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Fuck all that. It's because I understand, and they understand the fact that I get it completely. Yeah. You know, and you're talking on a level where there's no airs and graces, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. We're all in this together. And I think one of the biggest things that 
you, you, you know, we need to get across here is that you're not alone. Don't suffer in silence because oh, I'm here, you're there. Yeah. There's loads of us. No, there's, and there are. And like, once you're in the gang and you're, it's like, <laughs> uh, I always say that uh, when I started doing this, I came out as mental. I'm like, I, I had this, I came out of the closet as a, as a mental man. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly people are like, oh yeah, I've got, you know, I've had a, <laughs> like, well, talk to me about it. Yeah. Like, Oh, and you know, like you're like, oh, I have that. <laughs> it's and amazing, isn't it? Like, oh, and every time you do that, you're a little less, yeah, damaged. You know, you're a little bit less weird, and you're a little bit. And it, yeah, you're right; it's therapeutic. Just talking yeah. to anyone. We, we did um, a presentation. Um, I can't remember it was last year, the year before last, to a group of metropolitan police firearms officers, and you know, it was quite a heavy. Um, presentation um, and you can imagine there was a lot of humour um, because the, the audience was fit for it given the work that they were doing and have done and one geezer he stood up at the end he was a big muscly man and he went probably the best thing I've heard since I've been in the police I've been doing this job 20 odd years he said um, but I've got to ask this, this question to you and he, and he become quite sort of stern and he said um, why has it taken this long to have a presentation such as that. And I said, look, I'm going to put my hands up and apologise to you. I only went mad five years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm sorry. If I'd have known I was going to go mad, I would have done it a lot earlier. <laughs> you know what I mean? And again, it's a bit of a, an icebreaker because you're saying this sort of stuff to roughly tufty men and women and you, you watch as you're giving the presentation, you're watching them ticking these little boxes in their heads. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. I've done that or my husband does this, my partner does that. And we go through it, it's a weird thing, a bit of a roller coaster. You know, we, have, we all have a laugh, and it gets a little bit sullen, then we have some tears, and then we bring them back up again. And it's just because we're doing what we're doing now, we're just talking naturally from the heart. Um, and, it, you know, let's not use any big dressy up words and whatever, and the buzzword for the day is, who gives a fuck, at the end of the day, we're talking on a level that we understand because we're both sufferers and hopefully, you know, the people that see or listen to this will take something, something from it. And I hope that they're able to just go and embrace it and, and more importantly, talk to someone and, and, and get the help that they need rather than continuing to suffer in silence. It's just not right. And you don't need to, like, you don't need to go and talk to a professional no. The first bit is just talking to... Like, I think, uh, like, when you say it aloud, mm. you're like... Sometimes like, I'll say something aloud, and as I'm saying it, I'm like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but for the last month, that's all I can think about. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm fucking... Oh, it makes sense now. I can yeah. let it go. But... Yeah. It took me to say it, to do it, and it's just, it really is, like, just saying it is, like, find someone you feel confident, like, safe with, mm. like, and you'll find, like, one day you'll open up to your mate who you think's a right hard nut, and he'll go, fucking thank God for that. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, Absolutely, and, you know, again, when we've been away, every time we do a presentation or, you know, we get invited up to... Um, the NEC in Birmingham for the emergency services show yeah. and 
our, our president is a, a gentleman by the name of Graham Cole. He used to be in the bill. He used to play a character called Tony Stamp. And he's, people recognise him straight away. And they'll come over and everyone have a photo with, you know, Tony Stamp. Uh, they don't even call him by his real name. It's, oh, hello, Tony, how are you doing? And he, you know, he's, he's great with it. And I've known Graham, bloody hell, 20-odd years, because I used to do all the firearm stuff on the bill um, oh, really? many, many moons ago. So that's how my relationship with Graham sort of blossomed, you know. Um, uh, one of our other patrons, um, former Iron Maiden guitarist, Dennis Stratton, he's a good mate of mine. Um, you know, he's doing some amazing stuff now with his, his old band called Lionheart. They've got a new album coming out next week, you know. And Dennis does so much for other little charities and whatever, but whenever he can, he's always out expressing uh, about us and what we're trying to do. Even um, Andy McNabb, the old SAS guy. Yeah. You know, again, we served in the same regiment many moons ago. Um, and whenever he's out doing his stuff, he'll always mention PTSD because people associate that with the armed forces. Yeah. But he will express that a little bit further by saying it also affects our emergency services. Yeah. You know, so we've got some good people around us um, and they're getting the word out there. But it just needs for the, the emergency services, I, I personally feel, to embrace what we're trying to do. We're not trying to beat them up with a big stick or anything like that. We're just saying, look, yeah, you think, think they jump all over it, but um, yeah. I, I often think it's like there's still this fear of mental health. They're like people are like, oh no, you know, they they don't want to touch it just in case they catch it. It's really absolutely. Strange. You'd think they'd jump all over it. It's like yeah. we're offering you a free service here. You know, yeah. like, this is the thing. You know, it's. We're, we're wholly reliant on people making donations so as we can treat those that come to us. And unfortunately, COVID um, has knocked the sales out of anyone raising money for us. We don't get funds from anywhere else. So what we're having to do now is the little bit of money that we have got left is being spent on treating those that come to us. But I'm having to ask people now, can you self-fund? And it's not cheap, you know. Um, when you look at um, getting a professional assessment is about £200. Treatment thereafter could range from £130 to £150, dependent on what your needs are. You know, and that's, that's dealt with by a clinical team. So when you're looking at some people who've had 30-plus sessions, you can do the maths. It works out quite expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, so trying to get the, the emergency services to, to embrace the fact that their people are suffering and trying to get them, you know, I've put things forward to um, last year to the chairman of the Police Federation England and Wales and to the um, chair of Mile Federation. You know, go and ballot your members. We pay, or I used to pay, a hefty sum of money into the Federation, and all we got was a diary, right? Yeah, yeah. Ballot, your, ballot your members, yeah. I'm not asking for any more money, but let us take a pound out of the money you already give put it into a self-sustaining pot each month that will grow and there's a pot of money to treat as many people as we humanly can within your organisation. No one needs to suffer. Yeah. It's just it's just frowned upon, you know. It's like, oh, we open this can of worms and everyone yeah. can go off sick. <laughs> yeah. Everyone and can go mad and go off sick and then and, and yeah. blame us. Exactly, you know. But I, I sort of 
my my argument to that because you know trust me i thought of all these scenarios is quite simple you know for the for the blaggers who are thinking when i'm in the shit at work at the moment i've got a disciplinary coming up i'll go mad with ptsd that's fine because they'll go before a trauma focused therapist who is the best and they will weed out the blaggers straight away oh yeah you know that doesn't bear well for them you, you can't, you can't fake it. No, like when it's real, you know. You yeah, know. oh, big time. Yeah, you know. It, as I say, once you've been formally diagnosed with it, you know, I, I sort of say the, the simple things we said earlier, mate. Is just wear that badge with some pride because you've you've done stuff that, as we said, especially in emergency services or the armed services, um, that thankfully not a lot of other people have to do and. You know, it's just, it's what you, I know it's your job. I know it was my old job and that's how I used to think of it. It was just the job. I didn't, you know, I could tell you now, if my old partner was sat beside me, he'd be pissing himself laughing because picture two great big area ass coppers. I'm driving on the blue lights, you know, belting towards this fatality and we'll be having a punch up in the car or the van because I didn't want to get down and pick up the bits and pieces, nor did he. And we were fighting over who would do the paperwork. Now, I hated paperwork. <laughs> yeah. I, would, I would suggest that was the only time I enjoyed doing paperwork. Yeah. But invariably, we'd get to the job, Nick, and I would end up going down onto the track side. And my old partner, Mick, would do the paperwork. And, it, you know, I didn't think any less of him for doing that. You know, nor he, of me, because it was just, we went into them roles and, and that was that. It's just the way it works out for us, you know. I always think like nowadays there's not like um there's nothing harder. Like if you wanna be a right hard nut, like face face your inner demons because there's yeah, no, blah, like, blah, yeah. that's the fucking hardest thing you can do. Uh, yeah. uh, like that makes you proper tough as far as Oh I'm yeah, concerned. big time mate. I'll say big that. Time. we've gone right over, so we're gonna I really <laughs> absolutely love chatting to you. As you know, like you said, when you talk to someone else who's been through it, it, it <laughs> Great, then it? it feels brilliant, and like, yeah. you can't. I come away like I've had a bit of a shitty week, and uh, and it was funny because I talked to someone today like, uh, who experienced loads of trauma for being in the gangs, yeah. like, you know, seen loads of death, and, yeah. And you're like, and I started to pick up because I was like, oh, you're struggling with stuff. Oh, I, sometimes I struggle with stuff, yeah. and then like, and then I talk to you, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I feel good now. I can take the world again. Well, I'm glad we've been out to help each other, mate. That's yeah, the most yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. So, yeah. I, I think, so how do people, if they want to donate and they, or they want to kind of get in touch with you guys, how do they do it? What do they so do? So, people, um, our situation is that we can only at this time deal with emergency service workers or retired emergency service workers yeah. or their immediate family members. So, if you wanted to get in contact with us, it's simply www support at ptsd999.org.uk that email will drop through to us uh, I'll reply to it at some stage um, normally when I get home from work um, on our website is um, just ptsd999 if you go onto that website um, there's loads of information on there um, and there's a, a PayPal link where people can make donations that way or if people wanted to do some crazy sort of fundraiser for us just drop us an email 
Um, we'll have a chat and we'll square something away. Yeah, you're on like, social media as well, aren't you? Cause that's how yeah, I'm... we're on Facebook and that, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been great, Gary. I fucking loved it. It's been really, really <laughs> great. I've had a great time. And I say, I've, I've been, been really strict with time recently and I've just been <laughs> half an hour over. So I can't thank you enough. Yeah, no, thank you, you for having us, mate. I'm happy, you know, if ever I can help with anything, then I'm... Then I'm that's really kind. Thank you so much. That's that's wonderful. And thank you for the opportunity of talking tonight. I, I struggle with doing this sort of stuff because um, I'm, I'm not really a public speaker and I'm always self-conscious and all the rest of it. But thank you for giving us the opportunity, mate. It's, um, it's really appreciated. Thank you. That's oh, my pleasure. Certainly my pleasure. Right, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I had to read because I have to, you know, like your brain, my brain, yeah. don't calm down. So I have to have like, yeah. I was reading. Good. <laughs> thank you so much, Gary. Oh, uh, thank you, I, mate. I, I really appreciate it. This is an Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.